Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Join us every other Wednesday when we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science, as well as the ins and outs of Good Dog and how our platform can help you successfully run your breeding program. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Good Dog Pod, where we discuss all things related to canine health, research, how Good Dog helps breeders run their breeding programs, and so much more. I'm Dr. Nate Ritter, the staff veterinarian here at Good Dog, and your host for this week's episode. I'm really excited to introduce the topic of today's podcast, intervertebral disc disease and chondrodystrophy, as well as chondrodysplasia. I'm joined this week by Dr. Rebecca Foran. Rebecca Shodra-Foran earned her PhD in neurogenetics from the University of Oxford in 2011 as part of the National Institutes of Health Oxford Scholars Program. During her graduate work, Foran partnered with academic collaborators on both sides of the Atlantic to develop a research program integrating comparative genomics with neuroanatomy. She currently leads R&D at Wisdom Panel, Mars Pet Care Science and Diagnostics, a company guided by the mission to strengthen the bond between pets and their people through world-leading insights powered by DNA. As the head of R&D at Wisdom Panel, Foran has translated her passion for dogs and DNA into a research program built on data from 4 million dogs and counting. With the goal of uncovering genetic factors underlying a range of the most common veterinary health conditions, previous professional experiences include work at Cellmatics, a preclinical biotech startup for women, where she helped define and oversaw the development of a web-based clinical decision support platform and accompanying patient portal serving fertility clinics across the U.S., Foran lives in Vancouver, Washington, with her family, which includes two human kids and two canines. She enjoys exploring her recently adopted Pacific Northwest home through hiking, skiing, and trying to keep up with her furry and human kids. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Thanks so much. Really happy to be here. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. If you could start just describing your role with Wisdom Panel for us, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I've been with Wisdom Panel for about four and a half years, and I am focused on building out a research platform that will help scientists and researchers uncover genetic associations with a variety of different clinical disorders, as well as phenotypes across dogs and cats. At the same time, we're looking to translate some of our scientific insights into product applications that can be rapidly delivered to both breeders, pet owners, as well as veterinarians so that they can incorporate them into their professional programs or use the information that we've provided to help provide better care for their pets. Very cool. A lot of implications across a lot of different fields. How did your background and experience lead you to this role? I took, why don't we say, a meandering path to get where I am, which I think a lot of scientists will say through the years. I started in a research program that was pretty fundamental, looking at foundational biological pathways and initially wanted to be a professor. However, over time, I realized that I was really passionate about getting science to a place where there could be meaningful change in a matter of months or years and found that of the options that presented themselves, going into industry offered me more direct access and opportunities to translate my scientific discoveries into impactful changes, first with people 
and now more recently with dogs and cats. So I actually started on the human health side with Cellmatics, as you mentioned, and I worked in a number of different roles, ranging from product manager to clinical operations, research coordination, and then ultimately more into foundational research. The path and the mission, though, was always to take genetic insights or clinical data and then convert that into information that average lay people can use as well as professional people can use to the best of their abilities. So I stumbled upon the wisdom panel opportunity, to be honest. And at first, I really couldn't believe the opportunity for a geneticist. It's really like walking into Candylands because there was so much untapped data. Wisdom panel, as you mentioned, has tested over 4 million dogs and cats, mostly dogs. One and a half million of those dogs also have paired medical records. So we can take a really deep dive into the genetics of those dogs, as well as the clinical data that we're collecting prospectively through one of our key partners, Banfield. At the same time, we have a very dedicated and passionate breeder community, both within the U.S. and around the world, who partners with us on a number of projects and often offers much more detailed data that we can collect from clinical records. So the two paired together presented an unparalleled opportunity for a geneticist and researcher to make real change in the world of dog breeding, cat breeding, and also veterinary precision care. Yeah, absolutely. And taking all of that clinical data into a research project, what goes into that? I think a lot of our listeners probably don't necessarily have familiarity or haven't been involved in them in the past. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about a general study, how you go about that, how you set that up, what's involved. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great question. And there are two basic ways that you might start a research project. Number one is hypothesis driven. So you have an animal or a number of animals that are presenting a phenotype and you don't know where it came from. The other is much more of a data-driven approach where you're screening an entire population and you're looking for abnormal data patterns and then you look into them. I'm going to dive into this hypothesis-driven project because I think that's more relevant for what we're talking about. And I'll actually use an example to illustrate how we got there in one instance. It's a paper that was recently published on Rottweiler non-syndromic hearing loss. The gene that was characterized was LOXHD1. And the way that this came about is through our partnership with Hannes Lohi at University of Helsinki. Hannes had been contacted by a breeder that had a litter of puppies, four of which had profound hearing loss, and one was unaffected. And he brought in a research team and he started asking questions about why this happened. So what he first did was he did a full clinical workup to understand that these dogs were truly deaf. He next took samples of their DNA and he used a number of different technical approaches to hone in on genetic mutations that theoretically could cause deafness. The fact that he identified this phenotype, deafness, within a family actually made his job a little bit easier because he had a nice pedigree where he could see how this disease segregated across that pedigree. And he could also superimpose the affected dogs over the unaffected dogs to basically ask what's the same and what's different. 
So in this case, kind of a geneticist dream, the mutation popped up like a sore thumb in the affected population versus the unaffected. That's the classic genetic story. The nice thing with pairing with a university and bringing in an industrial partner like Wisdom Panel is that we do commercial processing at a scale that a genetic researcher just doesn't have access to. So once identifying that variant, he was actually able to work with us to get the variant on our microarray chip, and then we could passively screen that variant across hundreds of thousands to actually over a million different dogs, and then collect data on both the frequency, so how frequently do we see it in the population, the distribution, do we see it in specific parts of the world, do we see it in specific breeds, and then most importantly, the causality. If we see this variant in different breeds, does it still have a phenotype? So what we found is that the mutation was very rare, but it wasn't private to that one family, which is really important. So we identified, number one, that it is outside in the population. Number two, it's in mixed breed populations. And number three, most critically, it also yields a phenotype. So in all of the homozygous individuals that we identified, they were expressing either symptoms of early onset deafness or complete deafness. So it was a really nice illustration of multiple different organizations coming together to tell a nice story and then hopefully intervene before the variant becomes too prevalent in populations. Oh, very cool. And really interesting to hear, like you mentioned, however, and work together to bring those strengths and that resulting research. Turning to some specific studies on the topics we were focusing on today, we thought our audience would be particularly interested in intervertebral disc disease and chondrodystrophy, as well as chondrodysplasia. We have a lot of questions from our listeners about those. I was wondering if you could kind of describe these conditions for us. I'd be happy to, and I'll start out by highlighting all of the wonderful work that our partner and long-term friend, Danica Banish at UC Davis has done. She's been a pioneer and has discovered most of what I'm going to talk about today. So with that, I'll start by saying this is pretty complicated. And please, please ask me to pause and explain if I get too lost in the details. So I'm going to start by explaining the difference between chondrodystrophy and chondrodysplasia. And then I will go into how CDDY relates to IVDD, intervertebral disc disease, and then how intervertebral disease leads to, in some cases, disc herniation. So basically three layers of complexity. So starting with CDDY and CDPA, CDDY is chondrodystrophy, and I remember it because it has a Y at the end, versus CDPA is chondrodysplasia, A at the end. Both are insertions of extra copies of a gene called FGF4, which is an important developmental signaling molecule. CDDY is an insertion of that gene at chromosome 12. CDPA is an insertion of that gene at chromosome 18. That's important for reasons that I'm going to get into later. So CDPA, it's often called breed-defining chondrodysplasia. So with breeds that carry this gene, 
you're going to see very short legs. So found at 100% frequency in breeds like Dachshunds and Corgis, as well as Scottish Terriers, this mutation, this insertion of the FGF4 gene has the most profound effect on legs. So you're going to get the shortest legs with this gene. CDDY, which I mentioned is an insertion on chromosome 12, is found in breeds like beagles and French bulldogs. It has a more subtle impact on leg length, but it also has a number of other phenotypes. So it has an impact on ear enlargement, widening of the head, and importantly, impacts development of the spine. So dogs with just one copy of CDDY have 10 times more FGF4 expressed in intervertebral discs. Some might ask why these are so different if they're the same gene. And we don't exactly know yet, but it's reasonable to assume that because the genes were inserted into different regions of the genome, they're expressed in different places of the body and at different times. So CGDY has much more impact on the spinal column. Back to more of the genetic side, both of these mutations, CDPA and CDDY, are autosomal dominant, meaning you just need one copy to see the phenotype, and they're additive. So in dogs that have CDPA, two copies, and CDDY, two copies, you're going to get the shortest legs. Dachshunds are the primary example of that. But you could have any combination, and then you'd have any combination of phenotypes, whereas where it gets pretty tricky to keep track of. Going back to CDDY and now talking more about the discs and how CDDY impacts them, you're going to see discs with abnormal degeneration from a really early age, as early as 10 weeks, actually, where the end of the degeneration process is a mineralized or calcified disc. It's a change that predisposes the disc to herniate but it doesn't cause the herniation. It just predisposes the dog. Dogs with one to two copies of CDDY are five to 15 times more likely to have discs that herniate. However, chondroid disc degeneration can also be seen in dogs without CDDY and herniation has been seen in dogs without CDDY, indicating that there are additional genetic and environmental risk factors. I think I got to everything, but are there additional questions on that? No, I think that was fantastic and really important, I think, for everyone to recognize the relationship there. I think we, speaking to before, when I said that we have a lot of questions from our listeners and our community relating to this, I think the multifactorial aspect of these conditions are what confuse people. So they come to us with these genetic results and not necessarily understanding the physical effects or the environmental effects and have questions relating to breeding stock and how to make those choices, which I think, like you said, is, is very complicated and difficult in some of the breeds, particularly where you spoke to where they're essentially all impacted. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that in terms of people trying to make breeding decisions based on uh, genetic results when it's not as straightforward as some of these other conditions that are inherited in a different pattern where we can clearly state, okay, you have one copy or two copies, this is most likely what you're going to see. Absolutely. And overall, this is the trend that we're going down. So CDDY is one example, but 
as geneticists, we knocked out the easy ones first. We found the ones that had deterministic effects. And now we're getting into this territory of risk, which is just really hard to wrap your heads around. But it's going to be really critical as breeders are trying to breed for the healthiest, happiest, longest lived dogs. So to your question, first I'll cover CDPA, because we do get that question sometimes. So CDPA, if you remember, is chondrodysplasia, the FGF4 insertion on chromosome 18 that's associated with short legs. To our knowledge, there have not been any clinical negative impacts for CDPA. So you can treat that as a trait and plan accordingly. CDDY is the mutation that's associated with IBDD. You can get, so starting with the actual animal in question, you can have a dog that tests for zero, one, or two copies. I mentioned that the mutation is autosomal dominant. So a dog with even one copy is going to show some clinical risk. So for the dog, regardless of whether it's a breeding dog or a pet or anything else, it's advisable to set up an emergency fund or insurance in case of a disc rupture. Also critical to know what signs to look for. One is back pain, but there are a number of others which we document on wisdompanel.com. You can also route there through optimal selection. On the question about breeding stock, so high level, Breeders are the experts. You know your breeds the best. And as you know, genetic testing is basically one tool in a number of tools that you can use in your breeding program. So it's really, really important to think about the overall genetic merit as opposed to zooming in on one specific condition. So first off, if the mutation is fixed in your breed, which is possible in breeds like dachshunds and several others, there's limited options for what you can do to reduce the frequency. However, interestingly, Danica Banish has shown that there is a distribution of age of onset of disc herniation across breeds. Dachshunds have one of the latest ages of disc herniation. And The theory is that because this mutation has been in the breed for such a long time, breeders actually have inadvertently selected for protective factors over time. And that's exactly what breeders should continue to do. Look at the pedigree and see what the age of disc herniation was, or if there was any herniation at all. Ideally, you can identify dogs with later onset disc herniation or no disc herniation to incorporate into your breeding program. If it's an option, you can also consider outcrossing. It really just depends on how you want to build out your breeding program. For breeds in which there is a relatively high prevalence, so let's say about 50%, it's advisable to choose dogs that just have one copy of CDDY and not to immediately breed away from the mutation because then you're going to inadvertently cause a genetic bottleneck, which would cause much more serious implications. So again, totally depends on the genetic structure of your breed, but think about the overall genetic merit. Choose dogs that have all of the features that you're looking for, and then think about CDDY. If your favorite line has one copy, that's fine. 
you can cross them to a clear or you can cross them to a carrier and then select offspring for breeding going forward that just have one copy or no copies. So it's a long process, but with patience, breeders have shown that they can do a really good job of getting rid of some of these deleterious variants. Yeah, absolutely. You know, knowledge is power. This is all just educational and helpful in terms of them making decisions. And I think you need to look at it full picture. Think about clinical manifestation, you know, to your point, you know, your lines, look back if you're bringing in new animals, new breeding stock, ask those kinds of questions, be aware of what you might be including. And then now on to some specific publications. We have a couple papers here that were kind of monumental and resulted in further research and publications on the topics that we just discussed. I was wondering if you could touch on kind of what these two papers cover and then additionally the resulting kind of studies and research that came about because of them. And the two papers, one is titled The Current Understanding of the Genetics of Intervertebral Degeneration, and that's published in Frontiers. And the other paper is... FGF4 retrogene on CFA12 is responsible for chondrodystrophy and the intervertebral disc disease in dogs, which is published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. Yes. So these are two key papers that Danica Banish published, and there are many more out there. The current understanding of the genetics of intervertebral disc degeneration for someone that has no knowledge of this area might be a paper that I suggest to just get a nice overall summary. It's also written in a way that more lay people could understand it. So that could be your first step in understanding the pretty complex genetics underlying this condition. The second paper you brought up, the FGF4 retrogene on CFA12, Like you said, it's the landmark paper that first describes this mutation. There have been a number of subsequent papers, most of which came out of the Banish lab that characterized the frequency of the variant, the penetrance, the age of onset, the odds ratio. But this is where it all started. Very cool. Very interesting to see the history and kind of what has resulted from that. Fantastic. Well, I think that's all we've got for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune into this week's episode. And we'd also like to thank Dr. Foran and Wisdom Panel for your time and willingness to educate our community. We hope this information was helpful. Yeah, we appreciate you tuning in and we'll see you back here for our next episode. Thank you for listening to The Good Dog Pod. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. So be sure to subscribe to The Good Dog Pod on your favorite podcast platform.